Amen. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles this morning. How many uh, realize that we are beginning uh, three nights starting Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, we're going to do prayer and fasting, and I don't tell you how to fast. Obviously, you know, the way to fast is to avoid food, you know. I know that's difficult for some. So I'm going to leave it up to you. You can miss a meal. You can miss a day of eating. You know, you can drink beverages. I'd always suggest you drink a lot of water when you're fasting. Okay, that's important. But uh, you know your medical conditions, histories, and all the rest of it. So, but I want to encourage us to come together on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night. If you're not able to physically be present, join us online. We're going to stream those three nights together. And so in preparation for these three nights, uh, what I want us to do is take a look at a passage of Scripture. You know, we do have an intercessory group in our church. We have kind of a prayer committee. And they usually communicate to me uh, every time and, and to our pastoral staff what they believe God is speaking into their lives as intercessors regarding where we're at as a church or maybe what we need to focus our prayer and fasting nights because we do this three times a year. And so the passage I, show, I have chosen this morning reflects some of the thoughts that they shared with us. So if you can turn to Revelation chapter 2 and beginning at verse 1, there's a lot of feedback coming back at me here. If you could just adjust that, that would be great. Revelation chapter 2 and beginning in verse 1. Now, how many recognize that we are actually living in a challenging moment? Anybody figured that out yet? And how many sense that there's a lot going on? There's things going on in our country. I could talk about Bill C-7, Bill C-8. I could talk about U.S. elections and how that would impact our country and all the things that are going on around us. And then just, you know, the rise, the second uh, wave of COVID and more people are now uh, affected by COVID. Even in our own community, we've had a rise of people in the last three or four days. So I think there needs to be, you know, a, a sense that, you know, we're not through this time in our, our history. Isn't that true? We recognize that. And then, you know, some of us were constantly being said, please pray for this. People are going into surgery. You know, people are having challenges in their marriages. People are having challenges at work. Some people are being laid off. They're looking for work. There's all kinds of challenges. How many go, that's true. That's where we're living right now. And, and sometimes we may question, does God really care about us? when we go through difficulty. Anybody ever have that, that little seed thought, like, where are you, God, in all of this? Like, do you, if you really care about me, if you really love me, why am I going through these things? And I think that that's truly, it filters into our minds. I, though there is an enemy out there, you know, these thoughts come into our head. But I want to just say that, you know, love can best be described as the unconditional acceptance of people. And I believe God is the, the author of love. As a matter of fact, the Bible says God is love. And God loves us unconditionally. And I want to always settle that question in our minds. Yes, God loves us. And how do you know God loves us? Because he died for us. There's nothing greater than a person can do is lay down his life for another person. So let's settle that issue once and for all in our minds. Like God does love us. And yet God allows things to come into our lives because he's working at developing something within us. And I think we need to understand that. Now, when we say that love can best be described as the unconditional acceptance of people, that does not mean that we have to agree with all the things they believe. I can love people that I totally disagree with. How many know that's true? You know, or how they live. I may not agree with their lifestyle, but that doesn't mean I stop loving people, right? As a matter of fact, I would argue that even though people can live a terrible lifestyle, God still loves people. 
and he loves the person who's deviating from even his own standards. God's love is unconditional. It's not encouraging. And I believe unconditional love reaches out to others. The power of love can be seen to transform even the most hideous existences that people find themselves in. And I remember reading years ago about a pastor who was called to a troubled church, and it was really messed up. I mean, it was messed up in every way. They were fighting amongst themselves. They had financial difficulties. And yet he felt the Spirit of God prompt him and says, I want you to go there. I want you to help this church. Even though they couldn't fully pay for his salary, he went and recognizing that he would have to probably look for a part-time job. And because he was a trained counselor as well as a pastor, and the community he went to had an had a institution for people that were struggling with mental uh, illness, he approached the directors with an offer to do part-time counseling. And when they checked into his credentials, they happily offered him an hour a week to start with. In other words, want to figure out where this guy's coming from. And they took him the first day to the most difficult place in the institution. They took him to Ward 37. The guard unlocked the door, stepped aside, the pastor entered, the, do- the guard behind him locked the door. How many have ever gone to an institution where they actually do that? I've been to places like that. My, always my thought is, I hope I can come back out again. <laughs> you know? I hope they don't you know, not figure out that I, I'm not staying, right? So you go in to minister. Anyways, he goes into the room, and there's very little light, but as his eyes are adjusting, he sees that the room is bare except for benches that are kind of around the corners of the, the, the walls of the room and are filled with men and women and some of them are even wearing diapers and the smell in the room kind of assaults his senses and there's human waste at different places in the room and he's trying to strike up a conversation. How many know that it's pretty hard to kind of help people if you can't converse with people and so he's trying to talk to them and all he's getting from people are groans and moans and demonic laughter. And, uh, and so he doesn't know how to start. And then all of a sudden, he gets an idea. It's kind of an inspired idea from the Spirit of God. And he, he kind of finds a clean spot on the concrete floor, sits down, and begins to sing this little song, Jesus Loves Me. And he just starts singing it. And he does it for the whole hour, and there's no response. And the next week, he comes back to the same building. They let him in, the same routine. Nothing happens. The third week, he comes in. By this time, they're kind of nice. They gave him a little stool he could sit on. The third week, he sits down and starts to sing the song. And about 20 minutes into the session, a large woman leaves a bench, begins to circle them, kind of like an animal would do, circling its prey. Pastor just keeps singing. Finally, the the woman sits on the floor behind him and softly begins to join in with him. Over the weeks, one after another joins singing the song, and by the end of a few months, 36 of these people have been transferred to a different part of the ward. In less than a year, all but two of them are released from the institution, and two of them now become faithful members of his congregation. So you say, how in the world could this song have that kind of an impact in people's lives? But we need to understand something. Love is the greatest force on the planet. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthian church, reminds us that love is the key. As a matter of fact, Paul says, love never fails. When everything else we've tried, you can be sure that love will prevail. Now, we might not always see immediate transformation. You know, we, you know how many know we're kind of an instantaneous generation? We want to see instantaneous results, but, you know, it takes time. 
takes time for people's hearts to melt. It takes time for people's lives to change, you know. How many know we get impatient with one another? We're going, why can't this person change, <laughs> you know. But there is an amazing eternal quality to love. It's transformational in nature. And it's always revealed in relationship to other people. Do you know you have to have another person in order to demonstrate love? You can't do this in isolation. And Eugene Peterson in his book, Reverse Thunder, says, sin fragments us, separates us, and sentences us to solitary confinement. The gospel restores us, unifies us, and sets us in community. The life of faith revealed and nurtured in the biblical narratives is highly personal, but never merely individual. Always there's a family, a tribe, a nation, and there's the church. And so it comes as no surprise to find that St. John's vision is not a private ecstasy given to compensate for his you know, prison sentence there on the Isle of Patmos, but is actually a vision that John receives of Christ in order to encourage the church. Isn't that a beautiful? So God many times allows us sometimes to go through difficulty, but also he recognizes that in the difficulty, he's going to impart something inside of us that's going to help other people. Isn't that an amazing thought? So sometimes we go, why is this happening to me, God? God says, it's not just about you. I'm allowing this to happen to you because it's going to do something inside of you that's going to change you and will empower you to help other people in their time of difficulty. Peterson goes on to say, sin, both our own and that of others, drives us into a customized selfishness. Separation from God becomes separation from my neighbor. The same salvation that restores our relationship with God reinstates us in the community of persons who live by faith. Now, we're going to look at a church in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was the largest city in what well, was the largest city at that time in a, in a province called Asia Minor, but what, as we know today, Turkey. And so Ephesus was this major port, big city, I think the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire at that time. And Paul was actually the founding pastor. He was the one that helped establish the church. But now 30 years later, a well-established church, they receive a message from the exalted Jesus, the vision that John has, a special word to that congregation. How many think it's pretty neat that God's going to give us a special word? That we could actually hear something specific that would be unique to our situation. And what we discover is the presence of Christ doing three things. First of all, he affirms them. Secondly, he corrects them. And thirdly, he promises blessing to those who respond in obedience to the message. And so, you know, a lot of people, you know, what we want is God's blessings, but not always in, in light of our response. You know what I mean? We, we want God to do good things for us on our terms. That's what I'm trying to say. And sometimes what we need to realize is we're going to receive good things as we respond to God, because God is not going to reward disobedience. Just like a good parent is not going to reward their children when they're doing the bad stuff. I mean, they still love the child, but they're not going to affirm and reward bad things. They're going to correct those things, and a loving parent will do that. So let's take a look at this pattern of affirmation and correction, which seems to be repeated for most of the churches in the book of Revelation. And I believe uh, shows the need for each of us to be affirmed in the things that we're doing right, correct those areas in our lives that are that where we are straying from God's purposes, and motivate us to make the necessary changes.
to keep growing in our relationship with God. You know, I really, I'm convinced every one of us should continuously be growing. How many know that's true? Every one of us should be continually developing, maturing, becoming more like Christ as we walk through this journey. And so that's one of the reasons why over the years I've been so adamant about these nights of prayer and fasting. Why do we keep doing this, Pastor? Well, let me ask you a question. Why do you take your vehicle in to get maintained? Why do you do that? Because you know if you don't do that, eventually that car is going to have problems or that truck is going to have problems. That vehicle is going to have difficulty. Isn't that true? Isn't that true, John? Yeah, you know that. We all know that. But you know what? In our spiritual life, sometimes we just kind of cruise along and eventually we start puttering and we, we, we run into difficulties and we go, what's the problem? Well, this is the time for a spiritual tune-up, if I can say it that way. So let's take a look here at three aspects of life that Jesus is actually zeroing in on. I've already mentioned them. The first one is what Jesus will commend us for. What are some of the things, you know, that we're going to be commended by God? And I think we all need affirmation. How many here really enjoy being affirmed and encouraged? Anybody here up for affirmation and encouragement? How many think it's really powerful when you're being affirmed and encouraged by somebody of real significance? When somebody you really love and respect is speaking into your life and they're speaking words of affirmation. Isn't that great? How many of you just feel like, wow, I feel great after that experience? And Jesus does that. That's how he begins. And I believe if we're ever going to address people with issues and have difficulties in their lives, we always need to start with affirmation and encouragement. We have to find the good things. We need to focus in. Because, you know, usually when we're, we're, gonna, we're upset with somebody, we're going to just correct them. We never speak words of affirmation, and we usually tune them right out, right? But how many know it, nobody's that bad? There's always some things in their life that's worth affirming, and Jesus understands that. You know, there's got to be at least something that we can affirm in their lives. And I think those words sustain us, and they actually help us through trial. How many know today, if you're going through the hardest trial in the world, the most important thing you probably need is a word of encouragement? Isn't that true? Absolutely. And Jesus knows that. And so he's going to speak these words to this church here. Now, I notice five areas that Jesus mentions in which this particular church was commended for. And I'm going to just list them to you, and we're going to look at them briefly. First of all, their works, their patience and hardships their intolerance of evil, their discernment of false leaders, and their hatred of the deeds of those false teachers. Okay, so let's take a look. Revelation 2, 1. Um, he begins here, to the angel, or to the, mess- to the pastor, really, this angel means messenger. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven gold lampstands. Now, these are beautiful words of imagery, right? And if you read earlier in chapter one, you'll realize that the lampstands are the churches and Jesus is the one walking in a church and he sees what's going on. So let's not be fooled. Jesus is paying attention to what's going on in the church. He's paying attention to what's going on in every city, in every community, in every congregation. He knows what's going on. He says, verse two, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. See, now there's an intolerance of evil here. That you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You're able to discern what's true and what's not. You have persevered. You've endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Talk about patience and hardship, right? These are all positive things. He's he's saying to them, man, you've done really well in these areas. 
But you have, and, and you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Oh, that's very interesting. How many didn't know? Uh, are you, sometimes we think hatred is a bad thing. How many here you almost say, if anybody has any hatred for anything, it's bad? Not necessarily. As a matter of fact, God hates certain things. As a matter of fact, sometimes we love things that God hates. That's not good. You know, here he's saying, I hate certain things. God hates injustice. God hates when people are being abused. God hates certain things in this world. He hates sin. He hates the, the effects and the destructiveness it has on us as individuals and how, how it affects our communities in a bad way. So God hates certain things. That's a shock to some of us, maybe. You know, he actually does hate some things. There's things God really loves, and there's things God really hates. Okay, so let's take a look at these elements. Jesus saw their deeds, their hard work, and their perseverance. They had not grown weary in the battles of their lives. How many here after a while you just say, I just, I'm getting weary. I'm a little tired of all of this. Anybody tired of COVID yet? Anybody tired of it? I'm just curious, you know? Once you kind of wear down, doesn't your little battery start to wear down after a while, you know? I'm saying to myself, I may look like the Energizer Bunny, but I'm really not. I can wear down every once in a while. How many feel that way? You're just kind of going, man, this is just going on and on and on and on, right? Is there an end to this, right? Sure, we, we feel that way at times. And they had remained faithful to their convictions and their belief in a hostile environment. How many know it's tough when you're in a minority position and you're hanging on to it and all around you people are saying the opposite? How many know it's kind of hard to hang in there? Sure it is. We recognize that. And you know what? Jesus knows that, and he commends us when we stand for the right things. I like what Eugene Peterson points out. We're not measured by our contribution to society or evaluated according to our potential. The church is a community where who we are and what we do is recognized and celebrated quite apart from the fads and fashions of this world. I like that. He's not about, God's not about trends. Okay, I know some people love trends, but he's not a trendsetter. He's more concerned about us doing the right thing. As such, the church is a glorious place where quiet, unnoticed, courageous lives develop out of the affirmations that take place in these communities. Quite apart from the incentives that society supposes are necessary to sustain motivation and enterprise, these people exercise a steadfastness. So what is he saying? He's just basically saying, when you and I are faithful to do the right things, God's paying attention. He's going, that's what I love. And you know, how many know it's, you know, let's say you're a parent and you're raising kids. How many know after a while you just go, this is hard work, right? It's challenging sometimes, especially when, you know, a young person's talking back at you. You know, they're going, I created you. I could take you out. No. <laughs> you, know, you know how parents feel, right? You're going, hey, I poured out my life for you and now you're, you're giving me this stuff? And to keep loving that person. How do you think God feels with us rascals running around the planet, you know, doing all kinds of stuff? So what are the, some of the things Jesus is looking for from us? Well, how do we, how we handle our problems that come our way? How do we handle them? Do we give up? Do we continue to trust him regardless? Are we faithful to our commitments? You know, sometimes we make a commitment going, I didn't realize when I made this commitment how hard it would be. But you know, we said we're going to do it, we're going to do it, even though it cost us something. In the parable of the talents, Matthew reveals Christ's commendation for living a faithful and productive life of service to him. 
And then we read in Matthew 25, verse 23, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'm gonna put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. What more needs to be said? God desires that we share in his joy. And I talked about that last week. Here these believers had been faithful. Not only were they faithful in their deeds, but also in what they believed. They maintained doctrinal or Doctrinal means teaching, doctrinal purity, and we're able to discern the false teaching. You can only do that if you know the truth. How many know that's right? You gotta know it to understand it. You know, a lot of people, you know, think you gotta study all the false systems. Let me tell you something. There's so many out there, you don't need to do that. You just gotta know what's the truth. You just gotta really understand what is the truth. And how many realize that wrong teaching produces wrong living? So what you believe is very critical in your life. Listen to verse three. He says, I know you cannot tolerate wicked men and you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. In other words, you go, this is not ringing true. Verse six, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So who were these Nicolaitans? Some of the early church fathers that thought that they were father, uh, uh, followers of Nicholas from Antioch, one of the early deacons in Jerusalem. You know, others, uh, regardless, we read in the correction to the church at Pergamum here in Revelation, they were being deceived by the teaching of the Nicolaitans, that they were held, that they held to the teaching, and it says, here's what it says about them, they held to the teaching of Balaam, who taught the Israelites to eat food sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. What many believers uh, or scholars believe is that these people were actually accommodating the Caesar or emperor worship. And what that means is that there, uh, the, the, the immorality was not just sexual immorality, but it was actually idolatry. It was actually turning their back on God. The heretics were apparently teaching that there was nothing wrong with participating in the imperial cult according to Grant Osborne since even most Romans did it out of civic duty rather than actual worship. In other words, they said this didn't mean anything. But you know, how many know our actions do mean things? We can't just negate this stuff. While love is the typical Christian attitude, love for the good carries with it a a corresponding hatred for what is wrong. Notice that it is the practices, that's important, and not the persons which are the objects of hatred. I think we need to get that. And I have to remind, and I think about this myself and I'm passing this on to you. We're not fighting with people, folks. It's not flesh and blood. So sometimes people get all wound for sound. They're all upset with this person and that person. Don't look at the person. Look at the spirit behind the person. You know, that person needs to be set free. That person needs to be enlightened. That person needs to be saved, right? They have a beautiful soul that God died for. So we gotta stop getting upset with people and be more uptight about the practices and the values and the spirit working behind the person. But let me move on to the second aspect of life, what needs to be corrected. Now, how many know most of us struggle with correction? Anybody understand that? And the reason why we battle with correction in our lives is because you know we deal with things like insecurity, I mean, that's true. And so when people correct us, we, we feel attacked on our personhood. And, we, and sometimes when we're insecure, we can't even take it. Or maybe sometimes we're so full of ourselves, we got pride in our lives that we just blow that stuff off like it's no big deal. 
Now, I think correction can, can be done properly and correction can be done improperly. How many go, that's probably true. And so let's just talk about, number one, when correction is done properly, it's a good thing. And when correction is done improperly, that's abuse. I don't even have that in my notes. I just gave that to you. It's free. You better write that one down. That's good. That just came to me. But it is the truth. You know, when we correct improperly, we're abusing a person. So we have to be very careful when we're correcting. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches us in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, it says, you who are spiritual need to consider yourselves before you correct the other person. You need to come in a spirit of humility and gentleness. So when we're correcting people, it's not because we're mad at them. We're correcting them not because we enjoy doing it, and it's not a power trip on our part. Rather, it's a responsibility we have to nurture and help that individual grow as a person. That's why we're correcting, because we love the person. Actually, this may sound shocking to you, but correction is an act of love. Well, if that's an act of love, I don't need that kind of loving pastor. But think about it. God says, I chasten or I correct those I love. Here we're seeing Jesus correct his people. So we know it's an act of love. Now, some people are just critical. And, you know, that's not what we're talking about here. So the question is then, what do we need to evaluate, adjust in order to have an intimate and vital relationship with Christ and others? How many think that's important? You know, maybe there's something in my life I need adjusting in. See, if I, if I think that I've arrived and there's no room for improvement in my life, I'm never going to change. And some people get stuck at a certain stage in their lives, and they think, you know what? I'm there. I've arrived. I'm a, I'm a fully-blown, perfectly mature Christian. Can I tell you, there's no such person that's totally arrived. Every one of us in this room, we have blind spots in our lives, and we need to work on things in our soul. And so, you know, if somebody says, hey, this is really curtailing and hindering you from really becoming the person God designed you to be, that's an act of charity on their part, to have the courage to talk to you and point something out that you may be unaware of. So, look, we have to take a look at the problem that was identified by Jesus, what was happening in this church. Listen to what he says in verse 4. And I believe that the problem that was being pointed out was of such a magnitude that if it was not addressed, it threatened the very existence of the church. How many go, you know, a lot of things you can let go. You know, I'm not suggesting we walk along and we're picking on every fault in a person's life. How many go, that's hand-picking. You know, you're just going after everything, you know. And I always say to people, is that the hill you want to die on? You know, just pick your battles wisely. But when people have a problem that you can see it's so detrimental to themselves and to others, it has to be addressed. Those are the problems I'm talking about. So we're not going after everything. We're not walking around. You know, my job isn't to go around and go, okay, I'm the, I'm the spiritual inspector here. I'm checking all of you guys out, and I'm just going to point out all the things that are wrong in your life. That's not my job. But if you are doing something that is so detrimental that it's going to impede your spiritual life and it's detrimental to the people around you, yes, it's my responsibility, if I'm aware of it, to say something. How many get what I'm saying? And that's actually a loving thing to do and not an unloving thing to do. What was it that Jesus points out to this church? He says, yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Well, that's an interesting expression. What does he mean by this? and forsaken their first love. What does that really mean? Well, I think 
John reminds us that our love for God is usually manifested in our love or lack of love towards people. As a matter of fact, 1 John 4.20 says, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. How many think that's pretty strong language? So I can't walk around going, I'm a real lover of God, and yet I hate people. That's not going to work. God goes, you're just deceiving yourself. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. How many know it's pretty easy to love God? Man, God never bugs me. I can love on him all I want to. It's just my neighbor that's the problem. I'm, I'm, listen, i got amazing neighbors, so I love them. But, and he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And I like what Judson Cornwall and Michael Reed point out in their book on this area. He says that God's love is totally undeserved. How many say that's true? We don't earn God's love. It's unmerited, it's unearned, it's self-evident. That this love is necessary for spiritual life is far less evident. What does he mean by that? Most of what God's love does for us is actually behind the scene. And God's love is the strength of our being and it's the wisdom of our minds. It gives direction to action, strength to function, and support to being. When we embrace his love, our lives are complete And when we exclude it, we flounder in life. What's he saying? He's saying when you and I, we need to be channels of God's love. That's what he's saying. He's basically saying we gotta open up our hearts, let God love us, and you know that you have an open heart to God's love because that channel is flowing out of you to other people. That's how you know you have that love. Now, we we now know that the lack of parental love will affect the personality and behavior of an individual throughout his or her entire life. Is that a powerful statement? How important is love? It's critical for the self uh, to be a healthy person. You need to know that you're loved. You need to have that security that someone loves you. Now, some of you say, well, I never had that, Pastor. Can I just encourage you right now? God's love is so great God can make up that deficiency in your life. If you'll open your heart to God and say, Lord, I've got this brokenness in my life. Could you open that up into my soul? Allow your love to really flow into my life so that that love will help bring a sense of deep security in my soul and that I can allow that love to flow through me to other people. The very love you're giving me, I want to give to others. Isn't that powerful? I love it. It says... The perfect parent knows that we need more than a token touch of his hand. We need to be made secure in his love in order to mature successfully in life. And God offers us that security. I love that. We can only love in proportion to the revelation we have of God's love. That's a very important point, guys. What's that mean? Listen, Paul's praying for the Ephesians. Isn't that interesting? Go back to what Paul prayed for them, that they may know the height, the depth, the length, the length of what? The love of God. You know, our greatest need in this room right now is to know God's love. That's your greatest need. You may not know that. That's your greatest need. Some of us think, I I need to be loved by people. Listen, I will guarantee you, if you know the love of God, you will be loved by people. It'll happen. That'll That'll be a byproduct. Most of us are going after the byproduct. What we need is to have this experience of God's love and really allow it to grab grab a hold of our lives. What we need is not more religious activity, but divine revelation of Jesus Christ. And I'll just say this, a lot of times what we end up doing as Christians is we substitute doing for being. You see, we get caught up. You know, we, we first come to Christ and we're just madly in love with him and we're excited about his forgiveness And then we get involved in the life of the church, which is the right thing to do, by the way. 
But then sometimes down the road, we get away from being loved by God and we get caught up in the busyness of doing. And you know, I'll say it this way. How many, I'll, I'll give you a more practical illustration, you'll get it. How many husbands, you get married, you know, you're married to your wife and then you get caught up with your work. And pretty soon you're so caught up with your work, you're neglecting your spouse. Does that ever happen? Does that ever happen? Of course it does. And then you, you, know, you talk to the guy, you know, I'm a pastor, I'm talking to this guy, and he goes, well, pastor, everything I'm doing is for my wife. Yeah, I know, but, that's, but, but you're neglecting her in the process. And that's in the sense you've left your first love. Your first love should be I'm focusing on this person, and yes, I'm doing this other thing, but I have the right priority. It's about the priority. That's what I'm getting at. When you and I have the right priority, when we're seeking first the kingdom of God, when we're really going after God, when we're hungering after God, they that hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled. There's something about going in that direction that's so powerful in our lives. And I'll tell you what happens is God starts revealing things in our lives and there's a freshness. And some of you right now, your lives are not fresh. Your lives have been caught up with the busyness and the challenges and the problems and the difficulties. Think back to the the parable that Jesus talked about, the sower uh, and the seed. Remember what he said to the one group? Uh, But the worries of this life, the, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word and make it unfruitful. Isn't that interesting? It's, let me read those things again. The worries of this life. Some of you are really worried. It's choking God's love and life out of you. Some of you are the deceitfulness of wealth. Some of you have gotten caught up on just making more. It's not about making more. The desire for other things. You know, whatever we put ahead of God is an idol. And God's going to destroy that idol, whatever that is. He will do that. I'm just skipping through a bunch of stuff here. There we go, caught up. We start trying to make ourselves acceptable to God, but what, we need to, what we're forgetting is that we are acceptable to God because of what he did, not because of something you and I are doing. God already loves us. You know, I like what Cindy Morgan said in one of her songs. She says, I've learned God loves us not because we're good, but because he's good. Get a hold of that. Isn't that neat? Let that get into your spirit. That's the truth the Ephesians church needed to be reminded of. A church can only continue so long on the loveless course. Without love, it ceases to be a church. Wow. Now you know why Jesus said, hey, I got something against you. I got to correct this. It's because you guys are self-destroying. And he stepped in and said something. Then he gives a challenge. A correction is given. How can this critical problem be fixed? Jesus starts with our thoughts. He says, remember. Verse 5. Remember the heights from which you've fallen. We cannot get any closer to God than when, we re- when we're receiving his love. It's much like a little child as they reach up to receive our love. Isn't that beautiful? Just reach up. Hey, God, I'm right here. I just want to be embraced by you. God says, okay, just picks us up. How many know just spending time with a person is so powerful? Anybody figure this out? You know, just doing something together, just being in each other's presence, just focusing in on one another. How important is that reconnection happen in our human relationships? How about with God? Lord, I'm taking time right now. It's just you and, you and me, Lord, and I'm just going to spend time in your presence. I'm reaching my hands up. I need a hug, God. That's what I need today. I need you to pick me up and give me a big squeeze. Anybody here need a big squeeze from God? Anybody here need to lift your hand and say, would you pick me up, Daddy, and just give me a big hug and tell me everything's going to be okay? Anybody need to be reassured today that everything's going to turn out all right? 
Anybody need that reassurance? I mean, little kids have no problem. They just walk up and say, hey, you know, and the parent reaches down, picks up the child, holds on to them, and the little child, they're not worried about if they're going to have a meal. They're not worried about paying bills. They're not worried about this, that, and the other thing. Isn't that an amazing thought? You know, maybe at the end of the service, we're all going to just raise our hands and say, Father, would you just pick me up and give me a big hug? I just need a little reassurance today. Isn't that great? I believe he can do that. Let me just, you know, then he goes on and he talks about repentance. Second point, repentance. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come and remove your lamp from its place. What is repentance? Well, it's a change of mind on our parts that leads to a change of actions. Okay. We see something differently and it affects the way we're going to live. Do you know there's a promise affixed to those who change their mind and respond in a positive manner? Then there's a recommitment. Repent and do the things you did at first. Here we have a change of mind that leads to action. Actions inspired by love is the most powerful transforming force on the planet. How many have ever, you've done something and you just, it's, you know what, your heart went out to somebody, you felt love towards that situation and you acted on it. That is the most powerful action you can do. But here, I'm going to blow you away. Sometimes you're going to feel nothing. And you're going to maybe even feel revulsion, and there's a need in front of you. And you know what? That's when you really know you have the love of God because you're going, I'm going to do this even though I don't even feel like doing it. Because you know when you're married to people, this is one of the big problems. A lot of times you go, I don't feel it. Who cares what you feel? You see, love is more than a feeling, folks. That's what our culture is teaching us every day. Love is a feeling. I'm telling you, no, love is a decision. It's an act of the will. You know, I'm going to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And you know what I found? A lot of times when you do the right thing, even though you don't feel it, eventually the feelings come right back and they hit you and they go, wow, now I feel it. Isn't that great? Let me move on to the final aspect that Jesus is addressing. To be comforted. How many here would go, I need comfort? You know, it's, it's great. Notice he starts out with a commendation or affirmation and encouragement. Then he corrects. But when you get done correcting, you know what you got to do? You got to comfort. You got to assure people. You know, a lot of times when we're correcting somebody, and especially young people, you know, or even older people, one of the things you got to do after you've corrected is say, but listen, here's what you need to know. I'm for you. I'm here for you. I want you to succeed. My goal is for you to flourish. What am I doing this morning? I'm teaching you how to, to, to act, to help somebody the way Jesus does. You see that? Affirmation, correction, now assurance, the comfort. Just pointing out what is wrong doesn't help us. What we need to know is how to do what is right and what happens when we do. Isn't that true? Hey, if you will do this, these are the good outcomes that are going to come your way. Watch what Jesus says here in this, in this passage. We will never respond in obedience apart from promise. I like what Scott Hefferman says. Every command of God is built upon a promise from God. Therefore, every divine call to action or call to obedience is at the same time a divine summons to trust in God's promises. I love that. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, I want you to think about that. What's he alluding to? The paradise of God. Where where, where do you pick up the story of the paradise of God? Where, Where does that take you in your mind? All the way back to where? 
Genesis, and what was going on in Genesis? Let's go all the way back to the garden and what was going on in the garden, even before the serpent showed up, what was going on in the garden? Adam and Eve had perfect union and communion with each other and with God. They were in a state of bliss. Isn't that true? Isn't that amazing? God says, hey, you know what? If you do this, I will bring you into the garden with me. I'm gonna bring you into my presence. Isn't that amazing? How many like that? You see, whenever you and I address sin in our lives, we enter right into God's presence. I mean, if we're gonna sit in our sin, God says, that's what's keeping you from me. Your sin is keeping you from me. You know, Isaiah 59.2 says, what separates man from God? It's our sin. But when you and I address sin in our lives, immediately we're ushered into God's presence. And I'll tell you, in the presence of the Lord, there's fullness of what? Joy. Now, if you weren't with us last week, go back. I preached on joy. And let me tell you something. We had fun. Did we not have fun talking about joy? And that's what God promises. He promises to give us fullness of joy. I want to close with the story. You know, some of you know who Leanne Rimes is. She's a country and western singer. Anyway, she's, she was uh, relating to a, a country legend, another woman, who was telling her an amazing story that happened to her. The year was 1950. And because of some of the difficulties that she had in her relationship with her father, she said, like I said, I was pretty big for my britches. And my dad had come to town and I had locked my door and put a sign that said, gone until someone is gone and he knows who he is. I'm gonna say that's not a very nice relationship. Little problem, right? Later I found out that my father had slept that night in the bus station. I guess he had a ticket to get home but no money for a room. He left town without ever seeing his only child. The next day, she, this woman, this is not Leanne Rhymes, the, the legend, the country legend, told her the story that she headed out on a, for her next show on the bus. And then an accident happened, a terrible freak snowstorm hit with temperatures plummeting down to zero. Eventually the bus drove off the road and the hardest thing of all was that the singer was a diabetic and she'd forgotten her insulin. How many know you're in trouble now? You know, the problem was she hadn't brought enough, I guess. And so this was now they were in a crisis situation. Now she tells it, I became hysterical. Because if the cold didn't kill me, the diabetic shock would. I knew for sure. I began crying, and I held it back as much as I could. But because I didn't want to upset the other passengers, but she was kind of choking back the tears, and you know. And then this old fellow with dark glasses came from the back of the bus and sat beside me. Now you have to remember the bus. There's very dim lighting, right? You can see that they're in the ditch, kind of a thing there. And he wore a knit cap pulled over his forehead and ears. In his ears, he had long hair and a shaggy beard, the kind men wear when they don't have enough money for the, being at the barber. By the way, he felt his way into the seat, and I knew he was blind. And I realized he must have been the only person on the bus who heard me crying. And he asked me what was wrong, and I wanted to tell someone. So it turned out he knew everything about diabetes. He told me he had take, it had actually taken his sight and that he had been using insulin as well. And he says, I've got enough here for both of us. And I thought he had the sweetest spirit I'd ever you know, seen in a man. And then he told me my speaking voice was as pretty as my singing voice. She said, you know who I am? He said, oh, yes. You're my favorite singer. I can't believe you recognize just from hearing me talk, she said. Well, us blind folks see with their ears, he said to her. And then he began sharing about his daughter and how much he loved her and how he wanted to move to Nashville to live out the rest of his life near her. And then he got quiet for the longest time and I thought he had fallen asleep, but then we heard men beating on the bus door. 
and we were about to be rescued. I shook the old man to wake him, but it was no use. I thought he had entered insulin shock, but the truth was he had been in shock for hours. You see, he had no spare insulin. He had actually been giving the insulin he needed to me. And in that darkness, with his hat and beard and dark glasses, I couldn't tell he was in shock. And he had been shivering something fiercely, but I thought it was from the cold. And here this man had died, and I hadn't even known it. And she closed her eyes remembering, I was so weak that rescuers had to carry me up the hill to their truck. We were taken to Nashville, and the man who had saved my life was left behind in the cold and dark. And one of the men said, he'll be all right. This weather will keep him frozen until we can get a proper burial. And I was reading the newspaper two days later. She went on about the accident and the rescue, and it had the name of the man who saved my life. And that name jumped off the page at me. It was my dad. He knew that giving his last insulin to me would kill him, but he did it anyway. The dad I refused to see gave his life for me. And how often in life, I feel like this is almost like a story of the way we treat God. The one who died for us, we have no time for. And my prayer right now, folks, is that you and I would take this next three days seriously. And we would really lock in and say, okay, we're in a crisis time. And there's, it's maybe not, maybe you don't feel the crisis in your life, but everybody around you, let me tell you, they're all in crisis. And if there ever was a time we need to pray, now is the time. We need to seek the face of God. And listen to what Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. He says here, We'll get there. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. If we truly have faith, and it's a growing faith, what it eventually produces is a love that's unconditional. Let's stand. Maybe you're here this morning, and I I just sense, you know, that some of you need to be encouraged right now. I just feel it in my spirit, and I want to go this direction. Some of you need to know the love of God. How many here, you just say, I want to be like that little boy, that little girl, three years old. I want to just lift my hands up and say, Father, would you just pick me up right now? How many need God to lift you right now? You need God to take you in his arms and hold you and affirm and reassure and encourage you right now. I believe he wants to do that today. I believe God wants to so open our lives that you and I become channels of his love. Isn't that amazing? I want you to think about our city for a minute with all of its problems. I want you to think about our world with all of its problems. What would happen if you and I were so full of the love of God that we would actually just become channels of his love? What do you think would happen in your homes? What do you think would happen in your workplace and in our community if you and I would just be a channel of God's love? Wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, I think it might be pretty amazing stuff would start happening where you and I would begin to serve one another. And you know, Jesus said something interesting in the upper room. He said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. It's so easy to be upset, frustrated, critical, blaming. I could name all the negative things. Isn't it amazing when you and I, even though somebody treats us poorly, we bless them in turn. We do good to them. We pray for them. Instead of cursing them and getting upset, we just do the right thing. We do the Jesus thing. We lay down our lives for them. How many of you, that's amazing. 
Isn't that what God did for us? That's what love looks like. And if you and I are mature believers, that's where we get to. When we start laying down our lives for other people, it's no longer about me anymore. It's not about my agenda. It's not about my wants. It's not about my desires anymore. I'm laying all those things down. I laid down my rights, and now I'm serving. And can you imagine a church living like this, serving, loving, caring, giving, sacrificing, serving, you know, and it just keeps extending out into the community, and people go, you know, I don't know what you guys are about, but I'll tell you something. I don't understand you. I may not agree with you, but I can't fight the love that I'm having demonstrated to me because that's what breaks down the, the prejudices and the hatred and the barriers that we're seeing in our world today. It's love. It's love, folks. And when you and I can come alongside of people and encourage them and affirm them instead of criticizing and jumping all over them, it's going to bring about a transformation in our community. I believe that. That doesn't mean we don't correct people. I believe we do. I believe today I've been correcting some of you. But that's the loving thing to do. Because if you're not walking on this path, you're actually not happy. You're actually frustrated and miserable. Right? It's true. I know that's true. How many here say, I'm going to lift my hands, let my Father in heaven just lift me this morning. I'm just going to let him lift me up. I'm going to pray for us. Lord, I just pray that you would lift us as a congregation. I just pray that people that are watching right now, people right now in their homes, are just lift their hands to you, Father. May you just pick us up like a little child and embrace us this morning, that we would sense your divine love surging into our lives. And I pray right now, all the anger, the frustration, the hurt, the confusion, the bitterness, the resentment, all of these things, Father, will now begin to dissipate in our soul because your love is now coming in. We just want to receive your love right now, Father. We want to be conduits of it. We want to be channels of it. We want the stream of your love to flow into our innermost being, Lord. We want to overflow with your love to our spouse, to our children, oh God, to those that we labor with, to those that are around us, our neighbors, everyone, Lord, whatever we can see to do good, Lord, help us to begin to love like we've never loved before. But now we have a source. We don't have to run out. We don't have to become bankrupt. Lord, you're the source of unconditional love. Some of us in this room may be worrying. People will take advantage of me if I love them like that. Lord, I don't know if we take advantage of you, but I know you just keep loving. And I just pray right now that you will help us to be like you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.